The Old Testament text is the 104th Psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed in splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys, they flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell, they sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants to cult, uh, for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and the Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These all look to you. You give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, 
This psalm might remind you of something. I hope it does. It should remind you of the first chapter of Genesis. It's a recapitulation of creation in its order. And uh, the psalm begins with God doing something that should bring to mind uh, something we hear about in the uh, first chapter of Genesis, the second verse, God dividing the waters. Um, we see, and this, by the way, is something that uh, my friend Dr. Glenn Sunshine shared in uh, the Bible study hour this morning. If you weren't there in the Bible study hour, you missed it. You ought to come out and enjoy uh, it when you can. And today, uh, Glenn shared uh, some reflections on the first chapter of Genesis. And he noted that in those first uh, verses in Genesis, we see God forming and filling, forming the created order, and then filling the created order. Days one through three, we see God forming things. And then on days uh, four through six, we see God filling those regions of the earth that he has just created and brought about by forming the very structures of the created order so that they could exist. And in the course of this, uh, one of the things I think it's worth noting is that Within the very opening uh, sentences of the first chapter in Genesis, we see this, as I noted, the dividing of the waters. And water in Scripture has a kind of ambiguous character. Sometimes uh, when we hear water spoken of, it's a good thing, at least good for the people to whom it's promised. Uh, And in other places, uh, when water is mentioned, it's not such a good thing like uh, those who find themselves swallowed by the waves in the flood. So it's it's, it's really kind of a a matter of how it's measured out. And what you have in the opening of the book of Genesis, of course, is the Spirit of God brooding over the waters. And we're told that the earth was uh, formless and void. And it's at that point, after that's been stated, that God begins to work of forming and filling, as Glenn brings out or brought out this morning. But uh, the formation begins with the dividing of the waters, and we see uh, waters separated in two ways. We see waters above and waters below, and then we see the waters below separated so that the dry land can can appear. And uh, this ambiguous character, when it comes to water, uh, uh, runs throughout the entire entirety of the Bible. As I already noted, we have Noah's flood. We have the episode with Jonah and, and the great fish. Um, Jonah found himself enveloped by the waves, sinking to his death. Uh, one of the things I think that's uh, really quite, well, for a kid anyway, very unnerving is, is imagining yourself as Jonah, sinking lower and lower into the depths and then a great mouth opening up beneath you. And that great mouth, of course, in your own mind is just another way to die. (laughs) But it's actually the means by which God preserves Jonah's life and teaches him a lesson in the process. But anyway, so we have this ambiguous character. And in other places, in fact, in this very psalm, when the waters are bounded and directed in a way that is life-giving, then the creatures who enjoy the waters, the living waters, as we can see in the case of streams and rivers, uh, enjoy the, the ability to, to draw from that water what they need in the proportion that they need it in order to live. 
So life and death, water uh, brings to mind both things. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why uh, we speak of the waters of baptism. Christ died, right? And we're baptized into Christ. So it's by means of his death that we are, this is another dimension or a way of thinking about water, cleansed from sin, right? So it's, and then, of course, Jesus refers to himself as a spring from which living water flows that and, and, you know, provides us with uh, life that uh, goes on forever, eternal in character. Something, though, that most folks are unaware of, or at least miss, particularly people who love the ocean, uh, like the Max and my wife, is that someday the sea will be no more. You see that uh, mentioned in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. And I'll get back to that in a minute, but I wanted to just plant that seed in your mind and get you thinking, why would the sea be no more? I love surfing. Why would the sea be no more? I love fishing. Why would the sea be no more? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. So hold on. This is what you call sort of, you know, enticing you to sort of like, you know, planting a seed in your mind. Anyway, we'll return to that in a minute. Creation, though, we see is also understood as being a dwelling place. And by the way, this is something else that Dr. Sunshine brought out. The creation itself is a temple. It's something that God has built uh, not only to provide a place for us to live, but for also, uh, you know, the Lord to dwell in. Now, he lives on the upper story, though. So when we think about heaven and earth, when we think about heaven, that's where we, uh, you know, Note that God uh, has his residence. Uh, but the imagery of raising a house is right here in verses 3 and in verse 5. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters above to restrain the waters above. And then we're told that uh, he's, he makes the clouds his chariot. And I'll get back to some of the imagery there in a minute. But then jumping down to verse 5, we see that he sets the earth on its foundation. So there's a, there's a, there's a roof, there's a, a foundation, and we're promised that that foundation should never be moved. This is something that folks in Connecticut really uh, appreciate today. We have a thing in Connecticut called the crumbling foundation problem. There was a large, you know all about this, Glenn. There was a large uh, a company that uh, specialized in the creation of concrete and uh, they were unaware that a certain aggregate had found its way in the concrete, and basically now multi-million dollar homes of Connecticut literally are falling apart because the foundations under them are crumbling. Um, this would be a very distressing thing, I would think. Don't you agree to discover that <laughs> that house that you thought was your, you know, palace that could not be moved is actually moving. But we have uh, the, the, the statement that the world upon which we... Uh, Stand and uh, the world in which we enjoy uh, stability is uh, a world that's been established by God and its foundations will not be moved. And we also see that there are residents at every level in this creation. Um, and I'll get into uh, some of the particulars in a moment, but I want to start off with a, with a, a, a statement that's made there uh, in verse, uh, verse 4 that refers to a residence that we can't see. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. This is a reference or a reference to a couple of angelic uh, beings. 
Uh, the word, the Hebrew word that's translated into the word messenger here literally means messenger, but it's also the Hebrew word for angel. So there are times in which we see that word translated as it's translated here, and other times we see it translated as angels. And then ministers of flaming fire, this is an allusion, I think, to the seraph, whose uh, the name in Hebrew literally means burning ones. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we are introduced to them. And that's, by the way, the only place that they're explicitly identified uh, in the Scripture. So you have the seraphim, the cherubim, but the seraphs are the burning ones. And so his ministers are a flaming fire. These are beings that, uh, that dwell in this creation, but we don't have an ability to apprehend them. So let's reflect a little bit about, uh, on the nature of, the life, of life in the house. The thing I noted earlier is that um, there are two levels to this created order. Uh, we see that alluded to or stated explicitly in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God made what? The heavens and the earth. Have you ever thought about the fact that the, the heavens are plural? There is a passage in uh, 2 Corinthians, I believe it's in chapter 12, where Paul talks about the third heaven that there's a layering when it comes to the heavens. What's that all about? Have you thought about it? Well, let me tell you what most biblical interpreters think is being uh, identified with these different levels of the heavens. The first level is what we can see above, clouds, sky above us. That's the first heaven. The second heaven would be the starry realm, the fixed stars, The planets as they move, that would be the second heaven. But beyond that, beyond our ability to perceive, because we're talking about the transcendent realm in which God dwells, that is the third heaven. There in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in an oblique way, and I think intended to convey a sense of humility, Paul talks about his own experience in the third heaven, in the third person. He says, there's someone I know (laughs) who found himself in the third heaven, whether he was there uh, in the spirit or uh, embodied, I don't know. And then he goes on to to describe what is indescribable. And he basically says, I can't talk about it. It's beyond words. Anyway, that's uh, where the presence of God is located. That's his abode. And we see that This is a place that was made by his own hand. So when we're told in various places in Scripture, for example, in this uh, passage that was read from the book of Acts in chapter 17, I do not live in temples made by hands, that doesn't mean that the Lord is homeless. He dwells in a place that he made by his own command, brought into being by his own command. That location that I just noted... But it's uh, a single creation, and there is a relationship between what we see above and what is below. And uh, this is alluded to or stated explicitly in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. Heaven is my throne. This is God speaking, the Lord speaking. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Meaning, of course, that the earth is subject to heaven and to the rule of the Lord who dwells in heaven. Now, this might 
raise in your mind, and I think it has for many people, the, the, the question, well then, what are churches good for? <laughs> Church buildings, for example, are they completely useless? Do they have any significance at all? I don't think that, uh, that they're useless, but I do think we need to keep in mind this important distinction that we can't capture God with a house that we build. And I think that's the thing that uh, has to be always kept in mind. Nevertheless, churches, physical buildings that are set apart for worship are important. Um, I think architecturally and liturgically, those buildings ought to in some way communicate to us that when we go into worship, when we enter worship, we are being lifted up and we find ourselves in heavenly places. Even though we just feel like we're all together here uh, in this building at this time in this place doing what we're doing, in a very real way, spiritually, we are seated, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. We really are in heavenly places. In other words, what you see physically around you at this moment is not the entire story. There's a much more significant reality that can't be apprehended with the eyes. But through the liturgy, how the worship is ordered, even the architecture, we should be reminded that we're in heavenly places. We should imaginatively even as we really do enter in to those heavenly places. Now, all of this is uh, important to keep in mind, but what does that have to do with the world below? Well, from heaven, God orders his house. He is a householder, and we see in verses 14 through 27 how he provides for his in, uh, the inhabitants. Each of the inhabitants has a place set apart for him, him or, or it, uh, and... Uh, that was also alluded to with reference to nations and peoples in that passage from the book of Acts that was read. Uh, so God has established the boundaries for the, habit, the habitations of each of the inhabitants, and he provides for them their food, including lions. Did you note uh, that particular part of the, of the psalm? Let me go back and, take and, and uh, remind you of uh, what we see there with re regard to lions. The young lions roar, this is verse 21, by the way, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from whom? God. I wonder what the rabbits and the antelope think about that. <laughs> but nevertheless, even uh, the, the, uh, the, the you know, beasts of prey, uh, that prey upon other beasts are provided for by the Lord. There are a number of things about this particular psalm that have a sublime character or a touch upon the sublime. In other words, we're not dealing with small matters uh, that are easy to apprehend and understand and sort of, sort of be unaffected uh, by. Uh, instead, we're introduced to things you know, throughout the course of the psalm that really do have a kind of overwhelming power to them. By the way, that's what the word sublime is, is referring to. Sometimes when we hear the word sublime, we uh, mistakenly assume that it's just a synonym for beautiful. You know, so people will say that's sublime when they're actually talking about beauty. Uh, the sublime is what is terrifying and overwhelming and powerful 
And we see, as I noted, uh, allusions to that throughout the course of the psalm. We see that at the very beginning, you are clothed in splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Uh, we see uh, the reference to the clouds being the chariot that the Lord either takes for a spin for the pleasure of doing so or in judgment upon those below. We see that. There are other references to things that are sublime. Take a look at verse 7. At your rebuke, they fled, meaning the waters, the sound of your thunder, they took flight. So even the physical elements uh, stand, if you could say, if you want to personify what's being done or described here in awe and fear of the Lord. Um, there are other things that are noted. Verse 21, let me see what we have there. Well, as I noted, the, the young lions. Verse 26, um, the Le Leviathan, that uh, awesome creature that uh, dwells in the deep. Uh, perhaps it's an allusion to the blue whale or the sperm whale or something very large, overwhelming, frightening to behold. Something you don't want to get too close to because you could be crushed and not even be noticed as you have turned into jam. You've got all of these different allusions to these powerful and uh, sublime things. Uh, verse, look at verse 32. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, referring to the Lord, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Now, I think one of the things that characterizes the way uh, we think about God and His works today is uh, we tend to assume that if something can't be described as lovely uh, or as pretty or as beautiful, then it has nothing to do with the Lord. This brings to mind a couple of poems by William Blake. He wrote a book in the uh, 18th century entitled Songs of Innocence and Experience. And one of the, one of the poems uh, in the collection entitled Innocence is the poem about a lamb. And I'm going to read it to you, and as I read it, it will probably uh, be familiar. The Lamb. This was actually written in 1776. Little Lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? That's a lovely poem. It's something you'd read to one of my granddaughters. Maybe I'll do that. I'll see them all this coming week. But in the Songs of Experience, there's another song, uh, poem entitled The Tiger. Let me read that one to you. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? As they're actually supposed to rhyme, just take it, my word for it. In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand, what dread feet? What the hammer, 
What the chain in that what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. Same Lord made both. You know what the most fearsome creature in the world, though, is? You and me. We're told that we are sublime in Genesis chapter 9. That rhymes. That's marvelous. <laughs> but we're told there, uh, when the Lord addresses Noah following the flood, that all the creatures of the earth will be afraid of us. They live in terror of you and me, even sharks. I actually had a marvelous conversation with Nate Wilson about this very thing. Nate Wilson, who's Doug Wilson's son. Anyway, we were having dinner together, and uh, he was talking about a documentary that he had been involved with entitled The Riot in the Danced uh, Water. And one of the things they decided to do is they decided to go and see some sharks. So they went out on a boat to an area where there were a lot of sharks, and they, and they went out without a cage. There was somebody that coached them uh, on how to conduct yourself in a water, in, sort of in, in the water when the sharks are all around. And, uh, you know, Nate, good-sized guy, athletic, but nevertheless, that's a pretty fearsome thing to do, <laughs> get in the water with the sharks. But this is what they were instructed to do. And there were literally, if you see the film, hundreds of sharks swirling around them, hungry sharks. But... Uh, what, the, uh, what they were told to do, what they were coached to do by this authority on the subject of surviving you know, in, a water, in the water with sharks is when you see the shark coming, look it in the eye. Stare it down. And so for two hours, <laughs> you know, treading water, uh, Nate and the other guys and the film crew were in the water literally surrounded by hundreds of sharks and they survived because the sharks were more afraid of us than we are of them. Remarkable, isn't it? You are sublime. Marvelous thing to think about, at least on a sunny day. Let me take you back, though, to the, the psalm. So the Lord provides for us, and uh, he provides for us provi by providing work for us to perform. Did you notice that in the psalm? Verses uh, 14 through 16, and then again in verse 23. This, by the way, is something that Glenn got into in the Bible study hour as well, the nature of the work that we are to perform. This isn't a curse. The work isn't a curse. The, wor the work that we are given to perform, we're given to, be, to perform because we're made in the image of God, and it's because God works that we work. It's true that we live in a world that's under a curse, and, uh, and we don't always see the results that we'd like to see for our labors, you know, as we give ourselves to the work. Nevertheless, it's our calling. And uh, we labor in this world either as slaves or sons, slaves of sin or sons of God. The difference, of course, is not that uh, one party works and the other doesn't. This is something to keep in mind. In, the, in antiquity, before at least the halcyon days of the Roman Empire, even patricians worked. So when Cincinnatus was uh, commissioned by the Senate in Rome to become dictator to save the city, he was out on the farm plowing. 
How big was his estate? According to the story, five acres is all he possessed, but he was a patrician of Rome. And then he went and helped uh, his city and saved it and then went back to the farm. And that's why George Washington, when he was uh, given the opportunity to become king of America but refused and went back to the farm, is called the American Cincinnatus. And that's why the, we have a city in Ohio called Cincinnati. It's not actually named for the Roman guy. It's named for George Washington. But anyway, now you know. So our work, we either perform our work as slaves or sons. And the difference between the two, of course, is the sons are the heirs. They work, but they're the heirs. The slaves are fed as they work, but they're not heirs. That's the difference. It's the difference between, not between who works and who doesn't work, but who gets the estate. And then he orders our days. We see that here at the end of the psalm. Each day in turn, verse 19, but then each life in turn. So we see reference there, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. The creatures that have all been named, this is an inclusive statement, but it also includes you and me. But that's not the end of the story. We see in the very next verse that when you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And this is something that's not just pointing to the fact that as the seasons change and in the course of uh, this the seasons, we see a dying off, and then we see a burst of life in the spring. It's actually, I think, also alluding to something much more capacious or significant in character. And I'll get to that in a minute. But the very last thing I want to bring to your attention is that at the very end, uh, what we see is that the Lord not only orders the physical creation that he oversees, but he's also the judge of the inhabitants. And there's a call on the part of the psalmist to the Lord, and the call uh, is this, let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. That's, by the way, something the Apostle Paul also notes in his address at the Areopagus in Athens. But I want to take you now to the end of the story, I mean, the real end of the story. This is in Revelation chapter 21. And I alluded to it a minute ago, but I'm going to read a passage here that includes that reference to the sea being no more. Uh, So this is Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have 
this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. One of the reasons why Christians uh, don't worship nature is because nature uh, will expire. It's not eternal in character. We have a God who will change things, this created order, like a garment. Remember that from the uh, 102nd Psalm? Let me just take you back to that. The 102nd Psalm where where this is uh, noted uh, in verses uh, 25 and 27 or through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. That's why we're not nature worshipers. Because nature, as we hear uh, noted uh, in this psalm and elsewhere in Scripture, passes away. Like a garment, it will be uh, something that's discarded and a new garment will take its place. And what we have in the new creation is, you could say, a new improved creation, creation 2.0. And in that creation, as I noted, the sea is no more, meaning that the chaotic has all been uh, ordered. What was formless and void has now been put in its proper place. Things have been ordered by the law of God to his good pleasure, and death is no more. Judgment, as we uh, normally think about in the course of human affairs, now uh, is final. And there's a city not made with human hands, but made by God that has a river running through it. By the way, did you ever see that film, uh, A River Runs Through It? That's an allusion to this passage in Scripture. Uh, Anyway, I'm not fully endorsing the film, (laughs) but there are some remarkable things in the film to think about, but that's actually a reference to this passage. And God will be with us. The space that separates us now will be closed, and death and pain will no longer live, and we will enjoy the sonship that we were redeemed to enjoy as heirs of eternal life. But as I noted, there are a couple of conditions, and let me go back and remind you of what those conditions are. Those conditions have to do with conquering and renouncing sin. Verse 7, let me take you back to that. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And then we're told, but as for those who are cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all idolaters and all liars, their portion is not the portion that the heirs enjoy. Instead, their portion is the lake of fire. Now, we have all sinned, Scripture tells us, and because we've all sinned, we're all guilty before God, but God is merciful. And his own son, who is God with us, 
God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's not as though God is some distant father who's just sending his son to do an unpleasant job. But God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's our God. He's made provision for us by making a sacrifice for us. And he takes upon himself the punishment that we deserve so that we can enjoy the blessings of eternal life that we don't deserve. And that's the good news of the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean you can just go ahead and live any old way you please. Remember the part about renouncing sin, turning away from all that stuff? That follows. But it's God who builds his city. It's not a city made with human hands. So God's dwelling place is not a place like this particular room or even the most magnificent church in the world. It's not made by human hands. Nevertheless... Uh, even the place that we will find ourselves in eternity, our dwelling place, the New Jerusalem, is the product of God's own work, and the construction of it is brought about by his own creative energies. And that's something that we have to look forward to, creation 2.0. Are you the sort of person that's always waiting for the next update for the iPhone? This is like the ultimate update. Creation 2.0, new heaven, new earth, something to look forward to. Does that mean that things in this world are insignificant or unimportant? Of course not. We don't say to a kid, oh, we're not going to celebrate your birthday this year because you're going to die anyway. (laughs) There are things that we just do because they're good to do. We serve the Lord in this world, and there are things that we enjoy in this world are good things, and they are the product of God's own hand, and we enjoy them and thank Him for them. And we work and labor in this world, striving to do things that please God and glorify God, knowing that even as this world passes away, those things continue on in the memory of our Maker. That's something to think about. God will not forget. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all the good things that we enjoy. And thank you, too, for the promises that we have of a better world to come that, again, We will owe you everything for. In Christ's name, amen.